Welcome back to Stream Again, the TV and streaming podcast that always tells the truth. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined uh, by the human lie detector herself, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? I- I'm doing well. Am I telling you the truth? I'm not going to call you on any of your BS uh, just yet in the episode, <laughs> but I'm prepared to do so later, Chris. Great. I I am going to brace myself. Uh, Audience, I hope you're ready to watch me eat a lot of humble pie for what I don't know yet. But Diane does because she's got a superpower, just like the star of the TV show we're going to talk about later in this episode. It's Natasha Lyonne on Peacock's Poker Face, which just got renewed for season two. We're reviewing the first four episodes that dropped in early February, and the show is ongoing at this very moment. So if you want to hop on the Poker Face bandwagon, join us, won't you? Because we're going to talk about that in just a bit. And then... We're going to compare it to, I think, the number one show that comes to mind when I say charming mystery of the week drama, The Last of Us on HBO. We're going to do a mid-season check-in and talk about some similarities, truly similarities, between The Last of Us and Poker Face. We think we're not crazy. Maybe we are. You get to find out later in the episode. But first, as we get to the news, I have to introduce a new segment, and this might be the first piece of humble pie I have to eat, Diane, because uh, we have to issue corrections. Uh, And some of these corrections are uh, legitimately our fault, and some of them are just the fault of the streaming universe itself. So join me uh, as we go through a few, beginning with our last episode. Uh, Diane, are you still watching that 90s show or uh, Night Court from our last episode? I am not very proud to admit that I have seen every episode of that 90s show. Oh my god, I am the exact opposite. I have seen every episode of the new Night Court. Together, we are one fan of of reboots. There you go. Yeah. Oh, I am loving New Night Court. So my first correction, I said I was going to keep watching that 90s show. I have not kept watching that 90s show, but I I am really digging Night Court. So I will have to catch up because I didn't dislike it. And it looks like the sort of light breezy viewing that I'm looking for these days. Who doesn't love light and breezy? In fact, so breezy, I have to issue another correction. Uh, As we breezed through the history of Night Court, the original series in the last episode, I repeatedly referred to Harry Anderson's character as Judge Harry T. Sloan. Uh, His actual name was Harry Stone. And in my defense, I just took the T and I moved it somewhere else. You know, that's fair. I I think that that is not the most egregious error, considering the show has been off the air for some time now. Thank you. Thank you. I uh, will not, you know, point out that I had just watched many, many episodes of it in a row in preparation. No, you're right. It's been off the air so long. How would I have ever known? Uh, But, you know, people seem to be liking Night Court and that 90s show because both have been renewed for second seasons. That's great news. I mean, I I think... This is good. TV comedy lives. Right? Who knew TV comedy is something people want to enjoy still, uh, and not just bleak dramas set in the post-apocalypse. Though I I would also watch a TV comedy uh, set in the post-apocalypse. Bring back, uh, what was that one, Last Man on Earth? Bring back Last Man on Earth. Sure, I'll watch it this time, I promise. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, same, same. (laughs) 
Uh, but you know, NBC did want to tout the success of Night Court, and I, I, I thought this was worth sharing. Uh, they said, according to Deadline, that the premiere episode of Night Court ranked number one as their broadcast rem- uh, premiere in the 22-23 season. So not just since 2023, but for the 22-23 season, the reboot of Night Court was NBC's top-rated premiere. I don't know what that says, but let's pretend it's good news. And then they pointed out that that is uh, in everyone's favorite demographic, the 18 to 49 demographic. And it was NBC's best comedy premiere since the reboot of Will and Grace in 2017, just further proving all we actually want to do is rewatch new episodes of old shows. I guess that is what we want. I'm not so convinced. (laughs) It's just a downer note. But you know, uh, not everything is a downer note. Uh, I'm going to pivot to one of our other corrections here. This one, not our fault. We did tell you, dear listener, that the Netflix show Uncoupled, starring Neil Patrick Harris, had been canceled. Because that was true at the time. But as things go in the streaming universe, uh, a desperate, hungry Neil Patrick Harris shows up at your door and you go, come on in and join us on Showtime. Showtime has picked up Uncoupled for season two and I presume is going to take season one off Netflix's hands. This is one I was genuinely surprised by, not because I don't think that it's a good fit for Showtime programming wise, because in many ways it sort of makes sense as a Showtime show to me, but just because of everything happening at Showtime, things being canceled right and left and Showtime becoming whatever Showtime is now. Well, you know, I guess that means I have to issue another correction. Uh, Because in the previous correction, I referred to the network Showtime by the name Showtime. But we're not supposed to call Showtime Showtime anymore. Showtime has been demoted to a a feature of the Paramount Plus Premium tier, which, wait for it, is going to be called Paramount Plus with Showtime. It's what it says on the tin. Sure, it is what it says on the tin, except they're also going to rename the cable channel Paramount Plus with Showtime because it will air some Paramount Plus originals as part of the Showtime lineup. But again, the channel is going to be called Paramount Plus with Showtime, which is just factually inaccurate. It's The channel is Showtime with Paramount Plus. Oh, dear. Right? Paramount. But this, <laughs> this says which of the two is... is you know, wearing the pants in this relationship, and it's Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus wants you to know that Paramount Plus is the Paramount Paramount Plus. You see what I did there? That's that's wordplay. I, I, I did. I, I saw it. I caught it. I still don't like the name. Yeah, no. yeah, nor my wordplay, I can tell. But it's that's <laughs> that's what's happening to Showtime, and it's not just a renaming. They are merging the Showtime, uh, essentially, the the people who actually make the shows, the, the people who have created this brand, the departments that actually make Showtime Showtime are being merged into the Greater Paramount Plus. And so creatively, it means Showtime and Paramount Plus are going to share a lot more DNA, uh, and that could be good. I imagine for Paramount Plus, it will be good. But it does sort of mean the end of Showtime as its own independent entity, as its own b- brand. It's, you know, the branding will live on with Paramount Plus. That's really a shame, I think. I, you know, Showtime was a bit inconsistent for me. I didn't love every Showtime show, to be honest. We reviewed Super Pumped here on 
an episode of stream again and i think we we're pretty mixed on it we didn't yeah. love it uh but there and, and are some Showtime originals that have been great. Guys, I, I never finished Super Pumped. I stopped right before the last episode, and now Super Pumped has been pulled from Showtime. They're they're not gonna have it on Paramount Plus either. Like they they this is they pulled an HBO Max and a bunch of shows. Super Pumped, Jim Carrey's Kidding, which I also never watched, uh, and the first season of American Rust. But American Rust has moved to Freevee, so that is on Freevee now, uh, where season two is being uh, made. Uh, and then the Kirsten Dunst comedy on Becoming a God in Central Florida, which I never got that far into, so, you know, I am to blame, I guess. Uh, but I found that really, really fun. Uh, and that one, I want to point out, the AV Club reminded me that uh, on Becoming a God in Central Florida, which is uh, set in the 80s, it's about, like, uh, MLM schemes, basically, uh, was a series developed by AMC which is also a company that has seen their brand essentially vanish in the last few years. Then it was bought and dumped by YouTube, which was a company that briefly flirted with being its own premium streaming uh, original service, and then was finally released by Showtime, which did renew it for season two, but then uh, that timed out with the pandemic and they canceled the, the second season order. So it's just a series of kind of doomed uh, streaming brands that, that this show just passed through in the night. True. At the same time, I think there's a way to frame that story as this show has almost died so many times and it manages to linger. So I do wonder if it'll find its way to uh, ad supported tier somewhere. Yeah, you know, some fast. Yeah, and platform. again, a lot of these things they're pulling them just because they want to license them to a fast platform. And again, fast, free, right. ad supported TV. What a concept. Uh, and so I think some of these will pop back up. Um, the weirdest one in that list is Super Pumped, because that is supposed to be an anthology series, and the second season supposed to be about Facebook, and as far as anyone can tell, that was never canceled. One question remains regarding Showtime. When will they tell us what's happening to I Love That For You? Right? This, I, I think this news is good news for I Love That For You, because if they were pulling it or canceling it, this would have been the news dump to put, the, put that in. I could see that. The other thing that I could see as a possibility is that they like the show and they want to do the creators a favor by not announcing it being canceled until it's found a new home. Possibly. And that perhaps someone else is shopping it and they're waiting until that happens, until it's landed somewhere to make the big announcement. Possibly. I w I, oh, I want that to come back. Please, please. Yeah, we deserve it. But you know what else we deserve? Some more news about Showtime. So enough with the corrections. We're so sorry for all our mistakes forevermore, because here we only tell you the truth about what's going on with the streaming world. And what's going on is that Showtime wants you to know they are not dead yet. They are perhaps demoted, perhaps now part of a longer series of words that you have to say every time you refer to them. But Paramount Plus with Showtime has more shows on it on the way. Uh, I'm curious, Diane, if these are the kinds of Showtime shows you enjoy or not. Uh, mostly, it's a bunch of spinoffs of Billions. Uh, they're called Millions. I am not making that up. Trillions. I am also not making that up. And then 
British billions, oi? Which I am making up. But again, the third one's supposed to be, and I regret that accent completely. You can just uh, strike it from the record now, please. Uh, but uh, they're basically going to knock off industry, which is British billions, which knocked off billions. And industry's good, but they, they just, I think, looked at it and went, okay, let's do that. And then there's a fourth one that I, I, I don't know, was something about crypto or Miami. They uh, Really, by the time I got to bi- millions, billions, and trillions are all going to be names of TV shows on Paramount Plus with Showtime, that uh, my eyes glazed over and I started to kind of go into a coma. I'm not sure about this branding wise. I'm I think that Billions is a good show that had an audience. I think part of what made it so good was the chemistry between the two leads, one of whom hasn't been on in seasons now. Uh, Yeah, he just left the show. He's just not on the show anymore. Corey Stoll's the new lead. It's already a spinoff of Corey itself. Corey Stoll is awesome. Yeah, I love Corey Stoll. But also, like, yeah. B- Billions has already entered the Showtime, the classic thing that happens to every Showtime series, which is, like, it airs for so long that the actors start to cycle out, and you realize that any other network would have canceled the show. Or any other yeah, creator would have just, just chosen to edit. Spin-off. Yeah, but But no, yeah. Showtime, Showtime goes, can we renew it? Let's renew it. Let's renew it. I mean, that makes sense to me because people have the habit of watching it. I'm not sure it makes sense to create industry again as rebranded as a billion spinoff. No, that does not make any sense to me, but okay. You know, and maybe part of this is just to have one of everything, sort of. Imagine we're going into the next phase of the streaming wars, and there will be questions like, do I renew my HBO Max, or whatever they call it next, uh, or do I renew my Paramount Plus with Showtime? And maybe you're on the fence, and you hear industry's good, and then you see, oh, Paramount Plus with Showtime has an industry-like I, I don't know. That's not going to convince me, but it might convince someone. It, it's a depressing idea, I think, because it means instead of kind of looking for new ideas and creating new concepts for shows, it means every streamer is just going to knock each other off so that they can defend against churn. And, I, you know, I think that example might be a little extreme, but I think both things will probably be true. I imagine you want to mimic what the other streamers are doing successfully so that you can say to people, oh, you enjoyed that? We have something very similar. Oh, Taylor Sheridan is just ruining television. Yeah, you Even know. the shows he didn't work on. It's just spreading. Because, of course, Paramount Plus, with Showtime, home to the Yellowstone Cinematic Universe, minus the series Yellowstone, which is on the Paramount Network, but streaming on Peacock. Uh, and and I just also want to point out, the Paramount Network is still a thing, so why are you re- rebranding Showtime, Paramount Plus, with Showtime? There's two networks with Paramount in the name now. What are you doing? Why is the world happening like this to me? Just bringing back the cable bundle. I give up. Yeah. That's it. That's the end of stream again, everybody. We are just going to go subscribe to cable, throw out our streaming boxes. We tried. We really tried. And you know what broke us? Paramount Plus with Showtime. It did. I'm curious, though, Diane. What shows do you wish they would spin off or reboot on Showtime? Because the other one they're talking about doing is Dexter. And I'm not even going to entertain that because they just did it. And they're like, well, we'll do it again. And that is the most in brain worms concept. Uh, and it makes perfect sense for Showtime. So I'm not even going to acknowledge that that's the other thing they're talking about doing. And I'm going to say, what shows do you wish they were rebooting? The Shy. Ooh, good choice. 
I was gonna say weeds for a couple of reasons. One, it's low-hanging fruit. Uh, two, the way that like uh, marijuana has changed in the culture since that show uh, premiered is is kind of ripe for reinvestigation. I think the idea of like weeds, but she's a legal pot dealer, or she's who knows. You could easily come up with ten pitches for how to reboot that. The other reason I would say weeds is I'm just shocked they haven't done it already because that seems so obvious to Showtime, and all I can assume is that somebody doesn't want to do it. Yeah, I could see that being the thing. I mean, uh, I would probably try to watch a, a Weeds reboot or spinoff. I um, I was thinking maybe something like Californication, which to me is peak showtime and the fact that it's like not exactly good, but the acting is good and it's like really salacious and juicy, you know? Uh, yeah. To me, that screams showtime in a way. At the same time, I just thought of like, is there any way that they could make that show now that it would be good? And I really can't think of one. I just think they'd get in the trap of being like, and cancel culture. Oh, no. You know, it would be so uh, many episodes about cancel culture. So many bad David Duchovny delivered jokes about being canceled. I, I, it hurts me to even imagine it. Yeah, I would much rather them develop a new project for David Duchovny. Yes, please. I'm, I'm all for that. Or just uh, desperately try to reboot the X-Files for a third time. I'll watch them. Yeah, yeah. Go for it. Uh, the other one that I thought was low-hanging fruit but is not going to happen would be a reboot of Homeland. But uh, 20th Century, which was Fox and is now Disney, uh, is the pr main producer on Homeland. So they, uh, Showtime would have to pay them to reboot Homeland. And so instead, Showtime pitched, like, a new CIA series that's, you know, reminiscent of Homeland. Sounds potentially offensive and also gripping. Great. Yep. That, that in a nutshell, would be the genre we're describing. Uh, all those things and more coming soon to Paramount Plus with Showtime. I'm going to end up watching it, so I don't know who I'm trying to kid. Just felt right. But, you know, we have other confusing streaming services to talk about. Uh, I'm going to move on to uh, what's going on at our good friends at Wapro Disco. Because the news came out a couple weeks ago that the great merging of Discovery Plus and HBO Max, which rumor has it, will be branded Max. I like the name Max. I've been thinking more about it, and I think the answer for all of these uh, mergings is to pare down instead of to just make them, you know, Warner Brothers Discovery Plus with HBO Max originals. Yeah, I have to say, Max is growing on me, if only in that the other streamers keep adding more words to the names of the, the streaming service, and I, I'm screaming inside every time. So you're right. If they could actually remove even more letters, maybe we just call it X, or just X. Yeah, X. Uh, have you seen the latest season of The Last of Us on X? Sounds like we might be on a drug. I'll have to re rethink that. Maybe go back to the branding, uh, the branding folks. But, uh, you know, we are expecting this great merging that will turn uh, Max into the most maximum streaming platform of all with all this Discovery content, HBO content, Warner content, everything that's left since they Thanos snapped away Batgirl and all those other shows last year. They're really focused on bringing all of what the, what is left, which is a lot, together in this new, probably more expensive, giant streaming package that is coming sometime soon, supposedly first half of 2023. Um, but 
word came out a couple of weeks ago that Discovery Plus is going to stick around. And so a lot of people responded in, uh, I think, the obvious dunks on just what's going on at Wabro Disco, because it's easy to dunk on all the strange decisions they've made at Wabro Disco. Uh, and of course, a lot of them were rooted in actual, you know, business because they have to uh, pay off a lot of debt. Uh, but this is one where I actually think it makes perfect sense and is ob- the obvious thing they should have known they were going to do the whole time. I completely agree. To me, this seems like a fit for the HBO brand, keeping it as a premium option rather than having, you know, it lumped in with Discovery+. Plus. It's HBO's always been something you pay a little extra for. I think that fits. Yeah, I actually think there's a good comparison to make with what's going on at Showtime and Paramount, right? So right now, you can just get the standalone Showtime app and just pay for Showtime. Or you can get Paramount Plus and just pay for Paramount Plus. And then they have a bundle option where, again, two separate apps, but you pay only like a dollar extra for Showtime, and they bundle out together. And a lot of people think uh, the bundle is a great idea. And a lot of people think the bundle is too confusing, and they want to put everything in one more valuable asset. And obviously, Paramount Plus is making the second uh, ladder decision there. They're sunsetting standalone Showtime and moving that completely into a single unified app where you can pay for different tiers. One tier includes Showtime. Other tiers don't include Showtime. But it's all in one app, Paramount Plus. Compare that to what Warner Brothers Discovery has decided, which is that The HBO Max app, which will evolve into whatever Max is, that is going to be the app for the premium service that includes all the content. And the Discovery Plus app is going to be the lower tier, essentially, that only has the Discovery Plus content. And now you'd ask, like, why would, well, why does it make more sense to keep them in two separate apps? And my theory is that they're worried about losing the people who are already subscribed to Discovery Plus, especially in the U.S., because this is mostly uh, focused on the U.S. They're going to keep Discovery Plus around. And that's where the majority of Discovery Plus subscribers are. And Discovery Plus subscribers are likely to be more price conscious or price sensitive. And the demo there might be people who are less tech savvy and might just get lost in the migration to a new app. I struggled for a year to explain HBO Max to my parents when HBO sunset the HBO Go app. They understood what HBO Go was. They did not understand that they had to move to HBO Max to do the same thing. And so even if they kept Discovery Plus as a cheaper tier, same price, and moved it into the HBO Max interface and and tile app on your screen, I think they'd lose some people who just either don't know how to migrate to another app, don't want the hassle of it because it sounds confusing, or have forgotten they were subscribed to Discovery Plus, and then when the app sunsets, they they stop paying for it because they'd forgotten they were paying for it. And those people aren't going to suddenly start paying for it again. They'll go, oh yeah, I was paying $5 a month or $7 a month for that? Well, I'm glad it's gone. So I, I think there's actually a smart retention play here. I completely agree. I also think when they were talking about merging the Discovery content with the HBO content. One of the things that Zaslav said was that uh, the two audiences for these were not identical, they're complementary. So not everyone that wants Discovery Plus wants HBO. You know, HBO tends to skew male, like you mentioned, it tends to skew, you know, uh, perhaps people that are higher earners. I think that, 
there are plenty of people who are just happy enough to keep Discovery Plus and avoiding churn with those dedicated viewers seems smart to me. I also think it's smart that they're not making this a bundle situation like the old Paramount Plus and Showtime bundle or the Disney Plus Hulu ESPN bundle. Because the other answer they could have said is, actually, we're not going to merge the Discovery content into HBO Max. We're just going to sell it as a bundle. So 20 bucks, 25 bucks a month, you get both apps. And maybe that's the only price point for HBO Max. And there is no way to get HBO Max without the bundle. Wouldn't that be the same? And I think the answer is in the long run, They want the HBO Max customers, and especially the traditional HBO customers who might kind of scoff at the Discovery content, they want to slowly introduce them to that content through, hey, as you're logging into HBO Max to watch The Last of Us, there's a tile for uh, House Hunters International, House Hunters Apocalypse, whatever the new one is. And you go like, oh yeah, and when The Last of Us is over, you watch that. And then over time, you start to have an affinity for the Discovery brands as well. And then you're even less likely to cancel because not just are you interested in the the highbrow HBO side of the service, you actually enjoy the Discovery side as well. And so they they, they need to make sure you see that. And the issue, the problem that Hulu really suffers from is that if you only are used to opening Disney+, Plus, you don't see the Hulu content. Um, unless they really go out of their way to slot in something that actually links you to the other app, which is rare. Uh, And same thing on reverse. If you're big into Hulu, uh, you never see The Mandalorian in Hulu, even though, you know, they are, again, the same, essentially. And so overseas, uh, Disney doesn't even have this problem because they don't have Hulu. And overseas, HBO Max isn't going to have this uh, Discovery Plus option at all. It's just going to be the the Max app that has all the content. So this is something where what they're doing is they're saying for the U.S. where people are more entrenched, so to speak, I think, we're going we're gonna to make as little hassle as possible. And hopefully that means we retain the maximum number of subscribers in the U.S. Meanwhile, going forward, we're going to put all our eggs in this single app basket uh, internationally, which is where the focus is for Disney and for uh, Warner, for everybody. Right. This all makes sense to me. I think it's a smart move. For me, I might be a little annoyed seeing some of this Discovery Mm -hmm. content on HBO at the beginning. Uh, But I'm sure, you know, like everything else, we got used to switching from HBO Go to HBO Now to HBO Max. I can figure this out, too. Right. This this one is less painful. I think in a lot of ways they learned a lesson from that really messy transition. And I I could imagine a situation where the David Zaslav Warner team came in and wanted to... kill off the Discovery Plus app and got some pushback from the HBO team that said, hey, we did this once and maybe that's not the smart move in the short term. Sure. Maybe. I could also see some of, uh, you know, Zaslav's old colleagues at Discovery, you know, because he's a cable guy saying, please don't do this to us. (laughs) Yeah, please. We still want our, our, our thing. Who knows? Who knows? That's interesting, though, and we'll have more about what's going on with Max uh, as they reveal the details. Uh, but that's not the only uh, strange streamer uh, the news that I have to. I'm, I'm just my brain worms from Paramount Plus with Showtime. It's it's infectious. I might be one of the infected, and we'll find out again when we do a mid-season check-in on The Last of Us later. But first, A quick beat of news from Netflix, which has uh, canceled, canceled, already canceled, is planning on removing one of their originals. 
This one happens to be with an asterisk at the end, but Arrested Development, which seasons four and five are a Netflix original, is not just canceled. It's it's disappearing. Netflix has decided, whatever, nobody liked season four and five. We don't even want it anymore. Uh, and some people think that this is like a big deal. I don't know. Everybody's doing this. And the first three seasons of Arrested Development, which are the three you actually want to watch, have been on Hulu this whole time because they are a 20th century production, and that's owned by Disney now, which also, I just want to remind everyone, means the Bluth family is owned by Disney. Amazing. It's just Amazing. such a world to be in. Uh, I think that, for me, the early seasons of Arrested Development are definitely a comfort rewatch that I go back to a lot as, like, background viewing. Um, so I will probably open my Netflix app less often with this news. Yeah, it was a nice reminder to me that I could be watching uh, those seasons on Hulu, mm -hmm. uh, which I just like Hulu. I'm a Hulu stan. What can I say? Gosh, I love Hulu. And I'm going to love Hulu even more when Netflix's password sharing crackdown spreads to the U.S., which there was a panic moment in the last few weeks when they put a help document live that made it look like the password sharing crackdown was happening. And then they pulled that back, but they did launch it in Canada, which means just like a balloon floating over the border, the password sharing crackdown is going to enter our airspace any month now. Oh, boy. Uh, let the chaos commence. I can't wait. And you know what other uh, real chaos is coming for me personally in the streaming world? Peacock. The free ride at Peacock is over, people. In more ways than one, uh, Comcast has decided that now that Peacock has exactly one popular show, Poker Face, which we are getting to very shortly, uh, they are going to first kill off the free tier of Peacock. Uh, that's happening all, any day now, I think. The, the free tier, they're just like, get rid of it. And then in the summer... Xfinity cable customers are going to lose their included Peacock Premium subscription. And I just want to remind people, Peacock Premium still has ads, lots of ads. So it's, you know, it's ad supported. I, in a way, if you were an Xfinity customer right now, Peacock is a fast channel, a free ad supported channel that's included with your Xfinity subscription. And now they're saying, yeah, what if we gave you a coupon for a discount to the $5 a month ad-supported tier of Peacock we've been giving you for free. And and I, I that very well may mean there's a price hike coming for Peacock. Uh, but just the idea that it, it, paying for the $5 Peacock subscription is too much of a burden for Xfinity. They'd rather give you a coupon for $2 off. Like, what? it feels like you're talking about a sandwich shop. If you, if you have enough Peacock originals, you get the 12th one free. Yes. Uh, so, you know, they, they're feeling bullish about Peacock all of a sudden, which, sure, I, I also just question the timing because I feel like it'll cause Peacock subscriber numbers to fall. Because there are a ton of people who are just getting it through their Xfinity subscription and don't watch it. They're uh, zombie subscribers to be on, on trend. Uh, and they're going to vanish. And maybe maybe the answer is they want them to vanish. Maybe they don't want those zombie subscribers uh, kind of tainting the data. They want to show real growth and real engagement. Because right now, you can say we have all these subscribers who get it through Xfinity. And any savvy investor or you know producer is going to say, okay, but what percentage of them log into the Peacock? app and how and how uh, often weekly monthly 
Right. Someone like that might be driving down your revenue per user in terms of advertising. Possibly, especially because Peacock's primary tier is ad supported. They do need to prove to advertisers that people are actually watching. That is so there there may be a lot of really good reasons that they're willing to take that short term pain. Uh, But it does mean I'm going to have to like pay for Peacock, which just makes me upset to say. Yeah, as we realize that we're going to have to start paying for more of these, possibly paying for our own Netflix accounts, what's next, you know, everything else is going up in price. It's a real what am what am I going to cancel moment? Yeah, and it's been a long time coming. I am not pretending like the free ride hasn't been, you know, going on far longer than I think anyone expected or really than it ever should have been allowed. I think, you know, we all talk about Netflix tweeting, you know, love is sharing a password all those years ago. Uh, mm. That was a long time ago. And and it set a, you know, a trend in motion that no one was really willing to push back on until very recently. And all it takes is, you know, one big player being willing to say, actually, you shouldn't share your password. Actually, this isn't free. Actually, this has been costing us billions of dollars for years now. And oh my God, we need to show a profit. Six months ago, I would have said, this is easy. I'll drop Peacock. I'll drop drop Paramount. Uh, At this point, I don't know. I would maybe keep one of those over something like Disney Plus or HBO Max. Yeah, it's going to be a lot more difficult now. And I think, you know, my attitude going in is, you know, uh, seasonality. When is the right time to renew your Disney Plus? You wait until you can do all of The Mandalorian in one month. Or you wait until there's two Marvel shows that have built up. And then you'll get through two Marvel shows in one month of Disney Plus. Uh, that I think there's going to be a lot more choosing around, okay, is this something that everyone's watching as it airs, like The Last of Us? In that case, I want to be watching that as it airs, and so I'm going to subscribe for the three months The Last of Us is on. Or is this something that I'm just curious about, nobody's talking about at work, so I can watch it, you know, in two months when the entire season finishes, and then maybe I'll drop HBO Max because The Last of Us is over. It seems like rather than investing in great original content right now, all of these streamers are thinking that the solution to this is lean into their franchises. And as someone who is in a deep point of Marvel fatigue (laughs) um, and, uh, you know, has not a lot of use for Yellowstone, I'm just not sure that this is actually going to pay off for any of these folks. And obviously I'm biased, but... um, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that that's what's going to keep people watching. I I have the same questions, and so does Kevin Feige of Marvel. Uh, there's an interview, we'll, we'll toss the link in the show notes, with like Entertainment Weekly. It's a real friendly puffball interview. But they ask him about uh, superhero fatigue, and he mentions that, you know, they're going to slow down, essentially, the pace of the Marvel's shows on Disney+, Plus because people are feeling like, especially the ratio of Marvel shows to the big movies, has been really off. And the movies, because they've been kind of in between their big bads, uh, have been kind of not the best of the Marvel movies, to be honest. Not not and not that's not just a subjective opinion. That's kind of like buzz and engagement. They're making plenty of money. That's not a problem. But I think uh, as the head honcho of this, Kevin Feige is well aware that if the fatigue continues, the profits will finally start to be impacted by it. And so to spread out the shows to make sure that each show is a little more uh, standalone. Or that you don't have to feel like you gotta watch them all. Um, 
and we'll see how he executes that. But but it was interesting to see that in an otherwise very light interview, he they were he must have wanted to talk about this. That this is something that is in the air enough that Entertainment Weekly is going to get a soundbite on it. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. But you know what else I'm fascinated by? This little procedural show we watched this week. This show that might be so good people will pay for Peacock. This show called Poker Face. Yes, we are talking about Poker Face, the new Peacock original uh, created by Ryan Johnson of Knives Out and Glass Onion fame. And it is a mystery of the week show starring Natasha Lyonne uh, as Charlie Kale, uh, a woman whose superpower is defined as one specific thing. She always knows if somebody is telling a lie. She doesn't necessarily know what the truth is, but she just knows if you're lying. And that is how she solves mysteries as she rambles through America for reasons we'll get to as we talk about the first four episodes that Peacock dropped as kind of a premiere block before uh, switching to weekly on it. Uh, So episodes one, two, three, and four of Poker Face. Uh, Diane, uh, did you enjoy them? Uh, No, not especially. I enjoyed her (laughs) very, very much. She is so charming and watchable. Um, I'm a big fan of Natasha Lyonne. Um, and a lot of the other actors, um, there are some really like A-list celebs who are doing um, B work on this show. Uh, I think that with the fourth episode, it really started getting my interest. And so I could see myself really changing my tune on this. I am open to falling in love with Poker Face. Uh, the first three episodes were a slog for me. This, there is just not enough plot for each of these to be an hour long. Yeah, so obviously I think I, I knew what your answer was going to be when I asked what you feel about the show, because we've been talking about this. Uh, I'm a couple episodes ahead of you, but I'm not going to spoil anything beyond episode four. Um, and so I went back and actually rewatched a couple of the first four episodes after hearing your your hot takes, uh, because I, I, I have to be honest— I was kind of pushing you forward. I was like, no, keep watching, keep watching. Let's do all four in the episode. I really want you to keep going. And as I as I went back, I'm like, right, because I'm kind of being an apologist for the first couple episodes. In particular, episode two is real light and not super engaging. Uh, and episode three is interesting, but a bit long. And then as I looked at the episodes uh, in the Peacock app, I also noticed the first three episodes are all about an hour or an hour plus long. They are literally long. And then episode four and then five and going forward have a more traditional like 45, 48 minute runtime. And they and I will say, like, episode four, episode five, I do like a lot more. Episode four with Chloe Sevigny uh, as the guest star is my favorite of the episodes so far. And and it is tighter and uh, has a bit more of a twist at the end. It's, in fact, maybe the only one that has, like, a real twist at the end. And and so I, I think you're right that uh, the first few episodes actually aren't super gripping, except for the fact that Natasha Lyonne is mesmerizing in this role. Agreed. Yeah, I really like her in this. So I will keep watching. Uh, And I think that it notably picks up in four. The writing is just better. Uh, A lot of folks have compared the show to Columbo. It's obviously borrowing structurally from that. And so I had to like kind of revisit what I know about Columbo because part of me was like, but yeah, Columbo didn't drag on like this. 
Oh, was I incorrect? <laughs> Columbo was 90-minute episodes, and then they expanded some to two-hour episodes. So I apologize for complaining. It is not as bad as Columbo, though also not as good as Columbo. Mm. And, you know, it, a lot of the comparisons come from the fact that it's a, a mystery of the week show. Um, and so every episode, Charlie is in a new location with a whole new cast of characters, and she's solving a murder, essentially. If Charlie Kale shows up at your place of work asking for a job, you d- you tell her to get out, because inevitably somebody in that workplace is probably about to die. Uh, but... The benefit of that is that uh, we get, you know, a whole new story each week. The downside of that is that we get a whole new cast of characters that we have to meet, understand, and then have a feeling about each week. And absolutely some are more successful than others. And that's going to probably be par for the course with a, a case of the week show like this. And so, you know, episode two, I didn't connect with any of the characters very much. Whereas episode four, I really did. Yeah, uh, I think that the case of the week is one aspect of why it doesn't doesn't totally grip me. There's virtually nothing in terms of character development that has happened in the first four episodes. A few other things about the setup of this show that I don't love. Another Columbo similarity, it's not a whodunit. We see the murders happen in the first like 10 minutes of these like long first acts of the show. And then uh, what we're watching after that is just how she catches them. And I haven't been impressed with her detective skills. Uh, This like so-called amazing ability that she has, it would be much more interesting if they just made her like clever or perceptive instead of, I don't know. Women just can't be good at things. We have to have some sort of supernatural help, I guess. Uh, Oh, Ryan Johnson. Oh, but it's yeah, it's uh, fine. That's fine. But yeah, she doesn't seem that clever yet, which is not very interesting to me. I have solved all these mysteries long before her. I mean, partially because we see it happening. But like the first two or three episodes, it's because there's video. It's like, oh, okay, cool. I don't Oh, The writing's bad, man. The mysteries are bad. I think you've locked on to what's maybe just, the, I think, going to be the, the divisive and also decisive factor for whether you like this show, is do you still find it interesting watching her sort of stumble through the mystery that you already know the solution to? Is it is it gripping to watch her try to piece it together and see what clues does she find? And I, I would say to the point of episode four, which is a really nice contained story about a band that uh, <laughs> had one hit but made no money off of it and then their new drummer writes another hit and they're gonna make no money off of it so they kill him and steal the song for themselves and she pieces it together through a series of extremely goofy clues but it's the one where there is the most uh, detective work being done by her where she's actually finding some literal clues and that i think makes that one more uh have a little more momentum because you are feeling like oh she's piecing it together not just stumbling into hey you're lying because sometimes i think the the issue another issue not just the issue the one of perhaps many issues with her superpower is that she she doesn't use it so much as it happens and so again in episode four she wouldn't even know somebody was murdered if not for one offhand lie from chloe sevigny's character that wasn't even really about that but did 
trip her lie detector and make Charlie go, why is she lying? And in a way, that's interesting. And in another way, that's not interesting at all. You could really come down on either side of that. You used the word gripping. Is the show gripping? And for for me, across the board, it's not. And maybe my enjoyment of the show will come when I learn to accept that it's not gripping. And like we talked about with something like Night Court, just be like, oh, this is fun, breezy. Oh, look, Adrian Brody's in this one. Cool, you know? Yeah, Uh, honestly, that is kind of the attitude I've been hitting it with and why I maybe enjoyed it more. For example, I was on vacation when it dropped. And so I watched the first four episodes on vacation, just kind of chilling out without really anything else to do. And so I didn't feel like, no, this is a little slow or a waste of time. I felt like, yeah, let this wash over me, this vibe, this kind of like 70s vibe that the show has. And, And if you're into shows that are a vibe, which is a thing, then you might actually really love Poker Face because the vibe of Poker Face is more clearly defined than the characters or the story of Poker Face. Definitely. One frustration that I also had, which I've had with other Ryan Johnson works, is that he gets these wonderful actors to do small roles and then underutilizes them. So it was like a nice reminder that like I love Benjamin Bratt and I need more of him. Luckily, he's a character who seems like he'll be recurring, but um, he's not given that much interesting stuff to do yet um hopefully he will uh but that was a big complaint of mine with the first knives out film uh and just like maybe a a general note i have for ryan johnson whose films are delightful and um a little bit uh less than satisfying for me often well you mentioned benjamin bratt who is a recurring character pretty much maybe the only other recurring character uh because charlie's on the run the the pilot is kind of a a little mini-movie about who Charlie is, why she has this power but doesn't really use it for anything. And and the answer to that is uh, she used it to cheat at poker and got caught. Uh, And so, uh, much like a card counter, she was blacklisted from the casinos, but one casino was willing to give her a job as like a cocktail waitress. And that's where she works as a cocktail waitress, and she's sworn off using her poker face, her lie-detecting skills to cheat ever again. Uh, And so that's how we understand her skill and how she knows she has this skill and how other people know she has this skill. Not that it's widely known, but that like Benjamin Bratt and some of the other immediate characters in the pilot know that she has this, you know, special ability. Uh, And in the pilot, they try to get her to use it to uh, fleece a guy for uh, money in a backroom poker game. They want her to like go in and do one more game for us. We'll pay you for it. Uh, But the twist in the first episode that is the inciting incident for the series is that Charlie's friend, who is a uh, a, another employee at the the resort casino kind of place, um, she finds what an unknown, very disturbing something on this guy's computer, the the whale that Charlie's going to beat at poker. Uh, And I, I read it as like. Child pornography. Child porn. That yeah. seemed to be the the unsaid thing. Something so horrible that she goes to her bosses at the casino, which includes Adrian Brody. Adrian Brody is her boss in this episode, uh, and says, "You know, oh, we have to tell the police. What are we going to do?" And Adrian Brody's like, "Oh, we'll handle it. We'll handle it." And then he sends Benjamin Bratt, who's his right hand man, to murder this woman and keep her silent. Uh, and so Charlie's friend is killed, 
And Charlie begins to piece together that it wasn't uh, like a robbery gone wrong, but that it was a hit. And Charlie begins to realize that Adrian Brody's involved, her boss, who's asking her to do these things. And then in the one real twist of that episode, Adrian Brody's character, once he's found out, kills himself. Right. And that's the inciting incident because his father wants revenge on Charlie and blames Charlie for the death. And that is why Charlie's on the run and why Benjamin Bratt is chasing her across America. And I, I, I found that moment shocking. Adrian Brody walks out, out onto a balcony and just walks right off. I, I don't that shocking doesn't mean I liked it, though, or found it to be a particularly satisfying kickoff. No, um, I think that he's a strong enough actor to sell a big choice like that. Yeah. And it, it felt like, you know, uh, I, I, I accepted it in the moment. Um, the logic of the whole thing of the, the father's revenge, too, and just blaming her for it all feels like a little bit of a stretch. But once you just kind of accept it as like, OK, this is the box that the show is in. It, you can just kind of run with it, which is how I felt about um, she meets this woman, Marge, uh, who also is sort of on the lam. And Marge introduces her. I think this was in the second episode uh, to this rule that she's had where she was running from uh, a creepy uncle type person uh and anytime she used an atm or a cell phone or anything that could track her identity she'd have four hours maximum until the person pursuing her showed up having that little uh recurring thing where she knows okay every time someone says my name on the radio or uh i use a cell phone or i grab cash from an atm i've got four hours to solve this case really, for me, gave the show some much-needed urgency. Yeah, that comes up in another episode with an ATM. She she makes the sacrifice mm-hmm. to get cash, and then she knows the clock is ticking. Um, to be honest, I don't know which episode, and if I just spoiled an errant detail from episode five, I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, it comes up in episode four again. Episode four, again, our highlight so far. Uh, she is a, a roadie with this band. She's the merch girl. And at a, one of the concerts where there's a big uh, a big act that they're opening for, she punches uh, the lead singer of the big act. Uh, and it goes viral on TikTok. And she doesn't find out for about three and a half hours. And then when she sees the TikTok, all of a sudden Benjamin Bratt shows up. And she literally asks, how long ago was this posted? And you see her realize. And that amped up the tension in that episode enormously. Uh, and at just the right moment, because she'd kind of solved the case, and also you could tell that she wasn't going to go to the police or anything because she didn't have the evidence. And so there was a bit of a, a denouement beginning to happen. And then they went, no, no, no. Because remember, at any moment, she might have to flee. Right. I I found that really, really helpful as a storytelling rule, and I think that they'll run with it. Again, does the rule make that much sense if you interrogate it? Probably not. But it's just helpful as a as a hokey structural help. The show relies on several things where you just got to go with it. Her lie detecting ability, the fact that she's on the run and that and that the reason is what it is. If you interrogate it too much, it's a little shaky. But if you just go with it, it makes perfect sense. And it adds the stakes. So much of the stakes of the show rely on you just saying, sure. That makes enough sense. And it certainly makes sense for the characters and the decisions they're making. 
I'm excited for future episodes to see if there are any ways that he'll break the format. So far, everyone who's been who's killed has been a good person, and yeah. the people getting them have been kind of like cartoonishly two-dimensional evil. And so far, uh, here is a spoiler. She's she's solved it. She's managed to find a way that even if she's not presenting it to the police, you know that uh, the person is going to get caught, the baddie. I would like to see some tension arise from her missing a solve, from her not getting them in time, or perhaps from, you know, the person who does the killing being somewhat uh, complicated and interesting and human. Yeah, I will say one thing about episode five, uh, which is it almost does that and then doesn't. It almost makes you root for the murderer and then at the end decides to turn them into a mustache twirling villain. And it's in that twist at the end that episode five um, uh, falls apart a bit for me. It's a good episode. It could have been my favorite of the, uh, the first batch I've seen so far. But it falls apart at the end, whereas episode four... Uh, has a nice ramp up and surprise twist at the end. And while it is still mustache twirling villain getting their comeuppance, the way it happens is surprising and uh, fun. And so, uh, yeah, that that's a, a real concern is that I've yet to see an episode where there is a little more rich uh, moral complication in the villain. Agreed. Yeah. Which is just hard to do in an hour. And also hard to do in this vibey Columbo genre that they're going for. Columbo was not known for morally complicated villains. No, it wasn't. And also, I think uh, a lot of the success of Columbo was the charisma of its lead. And we have that here. Like, Natasha Leone is fantastic. Yeah, and honestly, reason enough to watch the show and see if you like the vibe is just to see her performance because it is uh, it is both exactly what you would expect from her and also she keeps it fresh. You never feel like, oh, it's a, a Natasha Leone doing the Natasha Leone thing, even though it is Natasha Leone being Natasha Leone. Yeah, I agree with that. And that is a special skill. That's Peter Falk in a, in a mm-hmm. nutshell in some ways, you know? Yeah, I think she's like a generational talent. Yeah, and so that 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 is reason alone to check it out. And if you like having some vibes wash over you with a little bit of mystery, if you walk out during the first act to get some popcorn, it really will be a mystery for you because you'll miss the part where you see who did it. Uh, the part that is a little fun puzzle in each episode for me that I did want to mention before we move on to The Last of Us um, is the opening act where we see the murder. We never see Charlie in that that sequence where we see the murder. But in almost every episode, once we get into Act 2 and it rewinds a bit to show us how Charlie's involved and how she knows the victim, because she typically does, uh, we realize Charlie was present during many of the scenes we saw in the opening act. We just didn't see it from her perspective yet. And so there's an example in uh, the fourth episode again where, you know, we see the band on tour in the opening act. We see them go on this really sad, shabby tour to a bunch of bars in the Midwest. We see Chloe Sevigny write this bad song called Merch Girl to try to be their comeback hit. And then we see the uh, new uh, punky young drummer write this hit song and then conspire to kill him. And we see the show where he gets electrocuted and dies. And then in Act 2, we realize the merch girl who's been on tour with them this whole time 
is Charlie Kale, and she was befriending the drummer, and she watched it when he got electrocuted, and he, she was in half of these scenes. And I, that that is both uh, a fun Easter egg for viewers, and it gives you a little bit of a puzzle to untease in the opening sequence sometimes, too, to wonder where is Charlie in this? And a bit of like a where's Waldo in, in your watching experience. And so if those kinds of things tickle you, I think you'll really like Poker Face. But those are really specific little things, you know? Not, I, wouldn't ex- I wouldn't expect to sell someone on a show with the Easter eggs. No, though I think that is Ryan Johnson playing to his strengths. Um, he so did true. that very successfully in the first Knives Out um, and also actually in the second mm-hmm. one where like uh, the there's a perspective shift and we rewatch some of the same scenes. Um, yeah, I, I think that's that suits him. Um, he's creative and he's um, very uh, detail oriented in ways that support that kind of storytelling. Yeah, that is actually really well said. And uh, we'll keep an eye on the developments in Poker Face. If they go really off format, we'll come back to you to talk about it. Uh, But right now, we're going to take some of the ideas around Poker Face, this case of the week, main character on the run, and we're going to apply them to a mid-season check-in of this winter's hottest show, without a doubt. We are talking, of course, about The Last of Us. Yes, we just got through uh, the midpoint in the first season of The Last of Us. Episode 5 aired last weekend. The Super Bowl uh, pushed it up to Friday. Uh, So a lot of people, very excited. They got an early dose of The Last of Us. And now we're in the back half. There's four episodes left in the season. Uh, And uh, it seems like we're at a pivotal moment in the story for season one as well. Uh, But first, I I just want to ask, Diane, are, are you still enjoying it since we talked about the pilot? Gonna be honest and say that I didn't enjoy episodes three and four as much as the first two, but yeah. that um, the production quality is stunning. The acting is really first rate, uh, and so I'm checked in enough. I want I, I care what happens to these two characters um, enough that I'm definitely gonna watch the first season at least. Yeah. And it has been renewed for season two, and and word is season two will pretty closely follow the story in uh, The Last of Us Part Two, which is the sequel to the original video game, which, uh, spoiler alert for a video game that's been out for many years, is a time jump. Uh, so uh, th- there's going to be some conclusion of the season one story and then a time jump to season two for Last of Us Part Two. Uh, so we're, we're moving in that direction and I want to see how the story finishes. I'm I'm really enjoying it. And I agree the highlights are the world building, the production design, the performances, all stunning. I've really enjoyed watching the little uh, behind-the-scenes vignettes after the episodes on HBO uh, because, uh, for example, episode five has one of the biggest uh, zombie moments where the zombies, like, pour out of the ground. Uh, And it looks stunning. It looks like a ton of CGI, and certainly there is a lot. But then they showed us the movement coach and the dedicated, like, dancers and movement artists who played the horde of zombies in these, like, kind of crazy skin suits that had pieces of the fungus on them, but then obviously 
obviously they CGI'd a lot more onto them, but they were humans moving. And in a way, it really made me go back at that scene and and appreciate how the zombies are moving in this terrifying, fast, um, seemingly inhuman way, but there was a natural movement to it. It didn't look impossible. It it looked frighteningly inhuman in a way where the bodies were felt real but doing scary things, moving in ways that you didn't think a human body could move, but it didn't look fake. And I think so much of that credit goes to their real dedication to doing as much tactile, practical human stuff as they can. I completely agree, and I'm so excited about that. Right now, CGI is not just everywhere in terms of of making things look scary or monstrous. It's being used on like 80%, I read, of actors' faces just to make them look thinner, hotter, or younger, which is a little disturbing. Um, So I think that seeing real people, seeing these practical effects, obviously there is some CGI happening, but um, the gripping moments that they have managed to accomplish with people in the mushroom suits, for lack of a more sophisticated term, is really exciting to me as in terms of the direction of where we are in a TV creating culture. Yeah. And, and honestly, as you were talking about CGI's weaknesses or overuse, what I expected you to say is also it's bad a lot of the time because the CGI industry right. is just so overworked and it's so expensive that you, you just have a lot of shows that can't pull off the quality that you would need to make it feel better or feel as real as using real things and then just filling in the, the gaps with the CGI. Uh, those are absolutely highlights of the series in every episode. In terms of the story, I am in love with Joel and Ellie, and you're supposed to be. That is the main event. Um, And there are individual episodes where the individual episode I I thought was beautiful. Obviously, a lot of people talking about episode three with Bill and Frank. Um, that, That episode made me cry, and it was a beautiful, sad story. However, um, I... I worry that the show is going to just try to play those same emotional notes over and over and over again because it also walked into a ton of tropes. Let, you know, I, I began the episode not knowing that they would both die. I don't know the story of the game well enough. And this episode also kind of veered from the game. It's it's uh, much more information about these characters who were otherwise not that in, uh, involved in the game. And so all of this was, uh, you know, new to me. Uh, but what I assumed is that one of the gays is going to die because the trope is kill your gays. And then both of the gays die, and it's really sad. And the trope is like, kill all the gays, especially the happy ones. Kill your disabled, too. Yes. God, this episode was so hyped up for me. I watched it later than most people. I didn't have a chance to see it when it came out. And everyone was talking about, like, oh, my gosh, yay, gay elders. It's such a beautiful moment. I love, love, love both of these actors. So my expectations were very high. And then what we got from the writing, I was so disappointed. I got up and left the room. Um, I was so upset about about the writing in episode three. And it's it's just such a a love story cliche that's, um, I mean, beyond the fact that uh, the idea that um, killing off disabled characters as some sort of um, like noble action is incredibly problematic and frankly dangerous it's also just hacked 
I mean, it's been done a million times before. We know that these writers can do better work. And so that was disappointing. It's just like very general uh, treatment of disability. He had either MS or ALS, according to the uh, creators. Those are very different diseases with wildly different prognosis. Like, like what? Oh, it was awful. I can't believe, I cannot believe, I know it's going to win all the awards, so I'm just going to be the contrarian person saying that episode of television is bad. I, I think Despite you're... beautiful acting. Yeah, like, I, you know, the emotion carried me through it. And then when I thought about it afterwards, I don't want to rewatch it. I don't want to rewatch it for a lot of reasons. It's a lot of emotion that I don't want to necessarily re-experience anytime soon. But also, when I when I cooled off, I thought, yeah... Are they going to just keep doing this? Because that feels like emotionally abusive to me as a viewer. Uh, but that Yeah, feel- it's also just, is it sustainable? Yeah, yeah, that is my question. And episodes four and five, at uh, the conclusion of five, do the same thing. And the episode, episode five concludes with the two new characters we met, who I assumed were going to die at some point, or at least leave the story and then, you know, probably die, but at least we last saw them alive. They just, one of them turns into a zombie, the other one shoots him, then realizes what he's done and shoots himself. And it's horrible. And what it does do is check some boxes on Joel and Ellie's emotional arc together. Uh, Joel suddenly realizes how, how much he's... Um, protecting Ellie, like not just because he has to, but because he's feeling it the way he felt like he had to protect his daughter. He realizes he would feel as destroyed as this other character did if, if anything happened to Ellie. And Ellie sees this horrible thing happen and sees that she can't just save people with her special ability, with her, you know, immunity. Uh, and so it's, it's checking these boxes that their characters have to be, you know, cross on their journey, their hero's journey. And that feels really um, predictable and cliche in some ways. Uh, And that worries me because, again, you know, you're treating also some of the most diverse characters on the series as the most disposable characters on the series. The gay characters, the disabled characters, the black characters, the the, uh, son in that, uh, the younger brother, rather, in that is deaf the deaf character, all just all the ones that you in in a way it makes you feel like, oh, well, you you're using their their disability or their diversity as a shortcut for empathy from the audience. Well, of course, I'm going to feel empathy for uh, this beautiful gay man who suffers this debilitating illness as he falls in love. And yeah, that's how we're wired. Unless you're, you know, an alt-right troll who review bombed that episode. But, but in, you know, that is how we're wired to feel that empathy for certain people or certain things. And then you use that as a tool to make us feel so bad when they die. Because we didn't know them for very long. So you got to make us really care really fast. Yeah, in some ways to me, it also felt like some of the issues that I really did not like in uh, House of the Dragon, the other big HBO hit of the year, which made me worry about the creative direction of HBO dramas overall. Um, I'm just like not not seeing a lot that I love in terms of writing. Um, while I do think production value remains stellar. So um, I, I'm going to stick with The Last of Us. There's a lot of good stuff happening here. And when those clickers come, it is suspenseful and scary, and uh, the two leads are really, really doing beautiful work. 
Yeah, they really are. And again, this is where I, I come to the similarities to Poker Face. These are shows that really mm. rest on the uh, mesmerizing performances at the center. And if it wasn't for Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey, I, I'm sure you could find other actors who would do excellent work in those roles. But they are the main event. And that is necessary for this show to be successful. That is the show. It's about them. It's not about Bill and Frank. It's about Joel and Ellie going on this journey. And it seems like it's gonna introduce more characters like Joel's brothers coming back who maybe will recur a little bit more than just one episode. But at this point, I assume as soon as I meet anyone, you will either be dead or a zombie in one to two episodes. Yeah. And in terms of uh, representation on HBO, the fact that these two leads have these roles does feel huge and they feel very human uh, as characters, um, you know, like we don't have that many Chilean uh, superstars of television yeah. right now. Um, Bella Ramsey is non-binary. Uh, so, I, I, you know, I'm excited by them as performers uh, getting this space to be so human. While I do have those particular complaints about the in-episode characters. Yeah, and I, I feel exactly the same way. Um, in episode five, we have Melanie Linsky's big episode as kind of the boss of free Kansas City. And her performance is mm. fantastic. I love her. The writing they give her is pretty weak and very cliched. And it's all about revenge for this guy who turned her brother into the feds. And that's why her brother died. And and that story, that reason for revenge per- makes perfect sense. The way it's written is so hammy in order to, uh, at, you know, amp up her emotional stakes in one episode, as opposed to over the course of multiple episodes. And just so much of these uh, side characters suffer from this thing of we need to tell we need to make you care about them very quickly or we need to make you hate them very quickly whatever the response we need you to have to this character we need to get there really really fast because they're only going to be in one to two episodes and so a lot of cliches you know naturally find a way in in order to do that um, and th- that structurally makes a lot of sense but it does uh, it does give me that tone that I'm giving you right now as I talk about The Last of Us, which is otherwise a hit, a fantastic, enormous hit. Yeah, and I, I get why people like it. It It is fun to watch. Um, there's a, a feeling of appointment viewing that I have for The Last of Us that I don't have for anything else on TV right now. Yeah. And that is fun, too, the appointment viewing angle of it. Why are we doing a mid-season check-in? Appointment viewing, man. Why are we comparing it to Poker Face? Because we can't put down The Last of Us long enough to talk about one thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also comparing it to Poker Face, it's a show about people on the run. It's a road trip show. Uh, You know, (laughs) we'd almost say it's a buddy comedy, but Charlie Kale doesn't have a buddy. Uh, It is a show where every new character you meet and fall in love with is probably going to get killed or turn out to be a murderer. It's true. It's true of both shows. Yeah, I hope they have another person who comes on as like uh, a third for a while and just 
this gets like a four or five episode arc. That's and the then thing. they can, they can That's die. That's the thing. The way, like, Anna Torv's character, uh, Tess, uh, getting killed at the, at the second episode. Um, okay, I, I, sure. I would have liked three episodes of her or four episodes of her, and then you can kill her. I feel that way about Melanie Linsky's character. I know they couldn't spend that much time in Kansas City, but I just wanted a little more time with each of these side characters, and and I think that would have really changed some of my feelings about them. Whereas otherwise, I look at them, I'm like, yeah, that was the one who cares about her brother, and this was the the one who cares about his brother, and they're enemies because brothers. Moving on. Yeah, I mean, with Anna Torf's character, we did get her in some of the flashback sequences in episode three. So she could come back more. It seems that her relationship with Joel was so significant and obviously um, significant to his taking this journey with Ellie that I wouldn't be surprised if we got more of her or at least more about her through Joel's story yeah that's true and i that would be welcome i would love to see even just flashbacks mm-hmm. of some of these characters to get a little more time with them uh but that is where we're at in the last of us for now do you think we're crazy for having these opinions about the last of us or do you think it's even more like poker face than we'll ever know tell us podcast at streamageddon.com is the email address and of course you can always leave us a review on your podcast app of choice until then diane so many things to watch but i'm gonna soldier on because here on streamageddon we always keep keep streaming nailed it we got so close That's it. That's the end of stream again, everybody. We are just going to go subscribe to cable, throw out our streaming boxes. We tried. We really tried. And you know what broke us? Paramount Plus with Showtime. (laughs) 